0: Thank <music>
1: Space Cave, I'm David Huntsberger. a big warg to all of you, and in particular to Matthew Clement, who not only has been to The Junk Show while it was in existence a bunch of times, even though he lives in Ohio, he came out more than some of my friends who live in Los Angeles. And he is responsible for this episode because he put me in touch with a friend of his who teaches uh, neuroscience at Oberlin College. I'll post a description on thespacecave.com of his bio. We talk about it in this episode. Very fascinating. It's like a science fiction movie. I love this conversation. Apologies, there are a couple little tech glitches. I hope that's not too frustrating. Haven't had that uh, so far with Zoom. We've been very lucky, but for whatever reason, we couldn't figure out um, if it was his internet or mine, Uh, but... I don't i'm I'm setting it up as if you're expecting to hear fifty glitches. It's really not that bad, but just so you know i there's only so much we can do to clean it up. We're doing our best with the technology we have at hand. um I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. It goes without saying that the views expressed in this conversation are those of his are his own views and not of a place of employment. Now that that comes into play, there's nothing. Remotely controversial in my mind, um, but if you're sitting there taking notes, ready to sue somebody, good luck. I don't, I don't think you'll, you'll have much luck. But who knows? Um. Anyway, I'm excited for you to listen. I hope you enjoy it. There was something I thought just now, like, oh, I should mention that, and now I've spaced it. So hopefully, I'll think of it by the time uh, we break after this part one. With Patrick Simon, Dr. Patrick Simon of Oberlin College on neuroscience, AI, the brain. Here you go. Okay, I asked you if you're all ready, and then I pressed record, and then I thought I should probably ask you if you prefer Dr. Simon, Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Simon,
2: just Patrick, Pat Simon. Pat's fine. Okay. Yeah
1: you come uh, maybe by... you could
2: maybe you could say it one time first and then just call me Pat from then I don't know it's okay
1: like... yeah we're, Does that work we're... Professor Patrick Simon from Oberlin College by way of our friend of the show Matthew Clement or Matt Yes Pat how are you I'm I'm fine <laughs> I'm excited We we chatted a little bit before this and now I've mo I've mo I've, I've moved into like a Larry King mode Pat tell us about oh, yourself but... No I'm kidding I uh... <laughs> We started chatting, and I, I mentioned that I like you sent your bio, and I want to just kind of cherry pick through it. And each sentence is so fascinating and sounds like could be the plot of a science fiction movie. <laughs> but I want to cool. hear how you got into it. I want to hear about uh, why the brain, why neuroscience, what appealed mm-hmm. about it, you know, all that. I'm, and there's a thought that we were chatting about where I went. I made a note to myself, and it, now it's briefly slipped away. It'll come back. They had to do with learning and neural networks and kind of mm. the transition or the or the the, I guess the delineation between uh, AI and the work you're doing is is immediately sure. what I jumped to, and that might be way off. So it's not
2: off at all. It's it goes right to the heart of the matter. Oh, so. good.
1: okay. I wasn't reading yeah, I was- it as I was reading it, I was like, this seems to be if you're pursuing the human brain, you got to know right. all these little areas, these little, okay, we we know this. It brings this everything together, <laughs> in my view, in my view. I, I um, wouldn't even know what my view is because I feel so far I feel removed from it in that, you know, right. we, we see it tangentially through maybe you watch a documentary or hear a talk yeah. or something. And, and you might know, oh, the amygdala does this or the frontal lobe, this. Mm -hmm. But to really get into, like, specific neurons and the patterns and connections between each, that just seems so cool that you're like, ooh, okay, here's where this comes from.
2: Yeah, it's endlessly fascinating, yeah. But my my actual interest in this area comes from just wondering how minds come from physical organisms, physical organs, the brain – it seems when people think about it I was a philosophy major that's how I started out really I was interested in the philosophy of mind and it just strikes people sometimes as essentially inconceivable that we're just, just in quotes machines mm-hmm. we're just biological machines it just doesn't seem possible and so if you go back far enough to Descartes in the 1500s the whole idea was we're just like animals physically, mm-hmm. but unlike them, we also have souls. And there's this one part of the brain, the pineal gland, and that's where the soul communicates with this mechanical system that is the rest of us. And you know, when you die, that connection is severed, but the soul is out there in this immaterial world, whereas a pig, you cut them open and you cut open a human cadaver and you look at the brains and wow, they look really similar. All our organs are so similar. Um, we're, we're breeding pigs with uh, genetic modifications now so that you can take a heart out of a pig and give it to a human and it just works. It's not rejected by the human body. So that, that's how similar they are biologically. And yet we have this belief, or at least we seem to have had this belief for a long time that we're totally fundamentally distinct from them. We sure seem like it um so it's sort of inconceivable that there isn't something like that um this this separate place where the mind is and then all the scientific evidence we've collected from that time going forward it doesn't sound like that makes much sense you can remove the pineal gland and you, you may have some kind of disorder but basically you've still got a human there's no loss of connection to the immaterial world that you're still, you've got a person there. So then, well, then how does their brain do that? That to me is just so fascinating. Um, and then you, we live in the world of computers. So day after day, computers do these more and more amazing things. And it's, you start to wonder like, well, you know, as like in every science fiction movie about robots. How far would we have to go? Could we get to a point where we've got a robot that's just absolutely indistinguishable from a human that is essentially a human? What would we have to know to make that happen? And what would that say about us if we could be essentially, hopefully not replaced, <laughs> but uh, you know, you could somebody could fill in a, a robot could fill in for you, and they could essentially be a human? Isn't um, a
1: kind of a trope within that that. And maybe there's some um, paradox to this in that they become so enlightened and aware, but they're still bound by ones and zeros to make very clinical right. decisions. Yeah. They can calmly insert a knife into someone if it suits their needs or desires or or they a thing of humans are bad for the planet. You 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 know, and we go, oh, but robots give yeah. us a chance. And the robot's like, you've had too many chances. But wouldn't That's they to right. get to that point where they felt capable and possessing free will? They would be so close to human that, and this seems like some of your research does, is decision making it gets a little fuzzy in that like it's emotionally based it's a little bit yeah you you don't stay a robot you don't stay so this is the right decision you probably have things that you wish you didn't do that's inherently part of our brains they're trying to all right don't eat that food this week don't have one too many when you're doing this of whatever it is candy or chocolate or alcohol or that's just an a human thing so we think that they're going to get exactly where we are but without all that baggage that seems
2: Yeah, and that goes back to some philosophy in the Western world anyway, in which we separate cognition from emotion. And what had traditionally happened, basically computer science as a field, came from studying our cognition without studying our emotional or feeling aspects. It was all about symbolic processing. It was all about ones and zeros or symbols that could be manipulated in particular ways, to do things like make mathematical proofs, and to just do logical reasoning. And many philosophers have always elevated that aspect of us, that that's what, that's where we really shine. That's what really distinguishes us from a pig, because a pig can squeal and and clearly has something like emotions, uh, and we share that with them.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: But they don't reason. Uh, at least as far as we know. And they certainly don't talk about it if they do. Um, And so we elevate the reasoning aspect. And then what we did with computers for the first 50, 60 years of their existence, essentially we've automated the reasoning part of our cognitive emotional apparatus. That's what we've been working on with computers. That's essentially what they do. And we think that that's the important thing to do. And many philosophers have said that this emotional part of us that we seem to share with a pig or a dog or any other animal um, is, is just a hindrance. It just gets in the way. Emotion is the worst thing for making decisions. It just, you ought to be detached and passionless as you make these decisions. There, there are some philosophers, not, not all. Mm-hmm. Um, others take the exact opposite <laughs> view, but, but it seems that, like the dominant view for many years. and for or centuries really Mm -hmm. and so we made these machines that do this very very well we can they can plan out moves in chess 12 moves ahead and they can do it so well that humans just cannot keep up anymore because they can't hold that much information that symbolic information about where the pieces are on the board and what they can do and what you could do if i did this there's only so much working memory that we have Computers have no problem with much, much more working memory than we have, but they've never, well, hmm, I guess we're getting, maybe we're going in that direction soon, but there's never been a need to simulate emotion. Why would you want to add that into an artificial agent, especially when we've been told all this time that it's our emotions that get in the way of our decision-making? It's, we, there's so much
1: tied into that Uh, emotions and decision-making and on one hand humans now being like be in touch with your emotions share them don't don't you know force them down and at the same time like hey if you're in a crisis you want someone that's like we're gonna get through this no emotions follow me like you know there's a balance there of but I want to be over here in the corner crying that's not gonna help (laughs) it's just too human you've got to and I think of uh Descartes I think therefore I am But what is thought? If you can program a computer to say, hey, do you think clouds ever look at us? You're like, well, is that a thought or was that just a scripted thing? There's this documentary called Bird Brain, and they'll take birds and put them in situations they've never been in. So it might involve Mm -hmm. like there's a straw laying there or a stick, and there's a little box with a hole in it where if they put the stick through, it'll knock over a ball that'll Kind of a Rube Goldberg style roll down and hit a weight, and then a little nut will come out, and the bird will get right. it. But the bird's never seen this, and the bird right. says, "Look at this stick. Look inside this glass box. And think, that's a that's a nut, or that's something I've uh-huh. rub, There's a worm in there." If we had something like that that we'd never seen, imagine most humans just being unveiled a chalkboard or a whiteboard with an advanced math problem and being like, "Okay, go for it." We'd, our emotions would get into play and you'd be mad at yourself. Why didn't I study math harder? And they'd be yeah. like, we're going to yeah. harm your family if you don't solve this. Like, ah! The bird would just reason. It would just calmly be like, okay, there's
2: a stick. Well, I'm going to push back on that. Okay, okay, sorry. I'm going to say, no, I think they have their emotions too. And they would, if you pushed them into a stressful situation like that, they would flip out. Okay. And they, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but people have parrots as pets. Mm-hmm these birds, I think you're probably talking about crows. Crows They use parrots
1: in it too. They use uh, crows, parrots, and maybe one other that are like on the upper end of
2: thinking. Exactly. Their, their abilities are amazing, but they're like, I mean, I've seen it myself firsthand. They're like dogs and other animals in the sense that they have extreme, they, they have as much emotion as we have, obviously. And I think it's obvious and they have disorders, mental disorders parrots are so smart that they often find themselves just unoccupied. They're, they're bored. They, they will tear their feathers out, though. Did you freeze up again? Just a little bit, There's yeah. A little think, there. I'm not sure. I think it's
1: I, it just, I think is we could okay? hear, okay, yeah, I think it's fine. There, there might just okay. be some of these. I don't know why.
2: I haven't had this in a while, but um, hopefully it'll it could, smooth out. It could be me. I don't know. It doesn't say anything here. But, well, yeah, so what I was saying is that... Um, You know, parrots will will destroy a room. They'll shred things to pieces. They get very upset. Um, So in the case of these crows, usually, or parrots that are able to solve these problems, they prove that and use tools, make a tool, take a little stick and shred off the leaves and use that to stick it in the hole to get the the Goldberg contraption to work. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's an environment in which they can see that they have a reward at the end of this process, they've probably been through a little bit of this before Uh, you know they've been given some simpler examples and they've been trained up to understand that okay if i work at this i'll get my reward and the researcher isn't pushing me beyond my limits because if you do they'll get frustrated and they won't like it and they won't they won't participate and and then you got no study Um, this often happens in research with with non-human animals is you you have to cater to their mental state, if you upset them, they will not perform the behavioral tasks that that you want them to do. And so you have to figure out what's within their capacities and you, you, you can challenge them, but you can't push them too far. So we're really, really similar in that regard. Oh, that's good to know. Okay. I feel better about
1: holding birds in this sort of high regard of like, oh, they're almost machine-like and here's a problem.
2: Now I just attack it. But right and then that oh no they get very angry Uh, you know i don't know if you know the stuff about crows but i mean they can recognize human faces yeah they like certain people they dislike intensely dislike other people who they think are threats they'll attack them they go they start vocalizing and just and crows can really vocalize so (laughs) um yeah no they're remarkably human-like in many respects uh okay so i'm gonna just read a couple sentences
1: Just because I I think about this, and I I guess going back to the thought that I said had slipped me for a bit, it was, if you think of like the ocean and single-celled organisms and just forming an eyeball and how sweet that must have been, and then a mouth, and then like, let's get out of here, and some feet, and into mammals, and then standing up, and then a frontal lobe, and being here where we are now, if we can assume that that was the progression of Mm things— The, the brain and especially the front of it was kind of the last piece. And here we are trying to build uh, machines that learn and think like us. And we're kind of starting the opposite way from the front going yes.
2: down. No, that's exactly. I, I think that that hits the nail on the head. That's right. I mean, what we wanted from computers, computers used to be people. A, a computer right. was a person who sat there and solved calculations, so that you could do whatever was send a rocket into space or whatever we did before we had automated this stuff around World War two and and thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so we say, well, look, this person got stressed out, or um, is hungry, or didn't sleep last night. Now they're making mistakes. Well, a computer can break down, but generally, if you automate that kind of process you're gonna get a superior product in the end because you can speed that up. You can make a working memory for a computer that can hold a hundred things, whereas we can really only basically hold five or six things in our working memory at any one moment. Um, So that's what we worked on. And and the dream of artificial intelligence from about 1950 onward was to take that process um, that we obviously, engage in when we do things like do a mathematical proof or plan a solution to a problem maybe that's a better way to put it Um, let's automate that if we can speed that up fast enough we will have intelligence that's what intelligence is and there is no learning involved in that conception really I know there are people out there, maybe you won't be listening to this, I don't know who would say, wait a second, you're you you're mischaracterizing. There, there can be some kinds of learning from trying sequences that, you know, don't work, now you try a different sequence of actions or something like that. But there's never been any, uh, until very recently, any idea that, well, we ought to simulate emotions, we ought to build them in, and we ought to have artificial agents that get upset or they get really happy you know that why would we want to do anything like that all that ever does is screw humans up well we use our emotions all the time our entire every ethical system we have is built on the idea pretty much of how did that make somebody feel yeah it's not what sequence of actions did it make them consider it's did you make them suffer or not? Um, this is central to, to being human. And so um, I think what people are starting to realize when they look at artificial intelligence and look at psychology and neuroscience is that you know this evolved for a reason. Um, so you can take a cat, for example. There's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus and this part of the brain is really important. It's very small, but it controls all sorts of bodily functions. Um, all your drives are essentially you know, driven by the hypothalamus. They're, they reside there, the neurons there. You turn some of them on, you will be ravenously hungry. Mm-hmm. You turn them off, you will be suddenly completely sated. So your hunger, your thirst, reproductive drives, desire to breathe, all of these things Are going to be um, driven by these small brain areas at the base of our brain and so you can take a cat and they have done these experiments these are classic experiments and if you remove connections from neurons that are part of the amygdala and other parts of the brain that project down to the hypothalamus and kind of guide it and respond to it but if you cut those connections, now you have an animal that is basically just a big ball of instincts and drives with nothing to control it. And so you can get an animal that, depending on what part of the hypothalamus you disconnect, um, you can get it to go just crazy with anger. You just pick it up. It's called sham rage. And if you pick <laughs> that cat up, nor- it used to be a normal is it cat. It called,
1: it's called sham rage because the rage is sort of fabricated, so it's
2: a sham? Yeah, it, it doesn't serve a purpose anymore and it doesn't fit into a normal cat behavioral repertoire. So, you know, this cat was used to people before and suddenly you you touch it and it just flies into a rage, hissing and scratching and biting. Um, you can also, without damaging the brain, you can put an electrode into different parts of the hypothalamus and you can make a cat. You turn on the electricity, and the cat just flies into a rage. But rage is itself an emotion, and you might think, well, maybe that emotion is for killing stuff. That's what cats do. They're predators. Mm -hmm. But we've discovered that that's actually quite distinct from what they experience when they're hunting well. So you can make a very cool, calm, collected cat kill anything that you put in the cage with it that's smaller than it if you stimulate in a certain part of the hypothalamus. So there's this hunting behavior that leads to very effective killing. Mm -hmm. Anger is for other cats. Anger is for this is my territory. I'm going to fight you, but I'm not necessarily going to kill you. And I'm going to do all sorts of things to show you that I'm bigger and tougher than you. I'm going to arch my back. I'm going to hiss. I'm going to do all these um, vocalizations and expressions of emotion to show you you shouldn't mess with me. Back away. Um, That's not what you do to a prey animal. You're quiet. You wait and lurk. And when it's in in reach, you you pounce. And there's no hissing. There's no attack. So there's two different emotional states right there. And they serve an evolutionary purpose. One is Getting your food, the other is getting your mate. And these require different emotional states and they change how you respond to stimuli touch and sight and sound, all the things that you might experience when you see another cat. You have to process that in terms of what your goals are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you have to have different emotional states for that. So the emotions are critical and they, 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 they there are different modes of behavior, really. And you have to have them all, and so our artificial agents will probably, if they're going to be fully autonomous someday, they're going to have to have those. When I think of uh, like the Turing Alan Turing doing the um,
1: his first sort of computer to understand the code, because they had like you were saying the computers, the women that were doing all the math, and then yes, just this set of dials that I think of as like ones and zeros and sort of a simple flow chart of like if then if this is yes Yes. turn this dial it's set and so you build the most basic it's huge but then like well we can put this into a chip and we can say if this 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 and this so take like for a cat wow this cat has this turned on so it's killing great but it also was killed because it didn't realize this other cat that came into its territory was uh, a threat so now the the mm-hmm. cat that had that, maybe the cat that killed it, that gene is going to proliferate because yeah. it has both. It's killing prey, but it also understands territory. Then you yes. you have two lines there. If to just reduce it to that simplicity of that mm-hmm. ones and zeros if then thing has two things now. It's the protective or the territorial element, the killing element, that emotion. Yes. But then you start thinking of a human and like if those are just two we're dealing with a million, several million, a trillion. How many sure. of those, if well,
2: been... so there's a whole, yeah. Obviously, there's a whole field of research in psychology on this, and and many of these theories are based on the idea that we have a few basic emotions that we share with other animals, and this concept of a few basic building blocks being mixed together in new and un previously unseen combinations, that's where all the complexity, all these different emotions come, come into play. So we share anger, we share um, the desire to eat, uh, we, we share happiness, we share sadness. They can be sad, they can grieve, um, you know, depending on how, what animal we're talking about, but, but most mammals can do that, they do do that. Uh, they feel connected to their kin and things like that. Um. So, what what you can do is say, well, we can combine those elements in new combinations, such as um, an unhappy uh, outcome as a result of a social situation in which you said the wrong thing. Cats don't have to worry about that; they never say the wrong thing, so mm-hmm. they can't be embarrassed. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe you could somebody could argue with me about that, but. In general, they they have no need for embarrassment. There's no pride or shame. Mm -hmm. They have anger, sure, and they have uh, pleasure and pain, but they probably don't have embarrassment. And so humans, you could say, we have a few basic um, emotional states that are almost involuntarily expressed by our face there are, there are uh, connections from our hypothalamus directly to the muscles in our face to essentially leak out our emotions to everyone else. Smiles. Uh, you can get a person who's missing, you know, basically missing most of their brain. And if you just look at them, they can laugh, they can cry, they have these basic emotions, but they don't have any cognitive processing power, really. Um, so we have all of those, but then we can build subtleties in that that draw on our experience that are unique, experiences that are unique to humans, such as embarrassment. That's just a thing that doesn't come up for most animals. Mm-hmm. It's a big one for us, though, because we're so social and we have to do so much thinking about other people's minds. What do they think is appropriate? What do they think is inappropriate? and these standards change over time too. So we're constantly dealing with all these complex social situations that require emotions that are more complex, that are more subtle than what we share with all these other animals. But our facial expressions, those we, to a large extent, even Darwin noted this, that you look at the facial expressions of other animals that we're related to and they're very similar to ours. Mm You know we might not move our ears in the way that a lot of animals do but um because we, we lost that ability but um and and sometimes things mean different things so showing your teeth is is not a great thing i guess for a baboon you wouldn't want to necessarily show your teeth but you smile in a human context and that everybody knows what that means and that's cross that's not even cultural that's just something that's biologically built in isn't that where it came from
1: though the the primate sort of Hey, hey, check out these teeth. I could harm you with them. Not going to. So a smile is sort of saying like, these are danger, but not for you, old
2: buddy. Is Maybe right? so. Yeah, could be. Yeah, that could be. I mean, there's the there's the the common expression of um, friendliness that a lot of animals share. I don't know. How, I don't know if we do it quite this way, but most other, uh, especially quadrupeds rolling over on their back and exposing their very vulnerable belly Mm -hmm. wow you don't do that with an enemy (laughs) you know yeah and so when a cat or a dog does that it means they're they really trust you and um it's an expression trust you um and i guess maybe we've had to translate some of that to our faces um so yeah it could be that could be I'm not an expert in that, actually. uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, not to get too far afield in things that um, you're not like, I should steer back toward things that you're aggressively or (laughs) or purposely uh, studying, but just thinking of people laughing that cover their bellies, there's just like a weird subtlety there of like, (laughs) oh, that's so funny. I also think you're trying to stab me, so I'm going to cover up here, but there's just a weird distrust built into covering your stomach while you laugh. Um, okay. So it's study affect human and animal decision-making and how we keep track of time. The data my students and I collect, um, inform how my lab models, decision-making and timing circuits in the brain. We use mathematical and computational models that are as simple as possible while still achieving enough functionality to account for critical features of behavioral and physiological data. So Mm -hmm. those, that, that's a lot of Big words that if you just got up and read that in front of a group of people, they would sign off on you, the person reading it, as like, wow, that person's pretty intelligent. Those are a lot of big words, because yeah. I and I don't know that I intuitively in reading it understand that because we've kind of talked about it. But the simplicity and mm-hmm. making models simple. Yes, I was going to ask in that humans very complex. We know that you know the right. idea to create a supercomputer is sort of like. Um, deep thought in uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. We, yeah, we had, yeah. And you being a phil- philosophy person going, well, I'm kind of inundated with emotions and these things. What if I just had thoughts that were 12 chess moves ahead or mm-hmm. 10,000 or 10 billion chess moves ahead? Could that yeah. thought lead to, what is all this? What's going on here? And you build this computer, and if it's free of all this extraneous stuff, maybe it could have that thought that would explain it. But to go back to like our beginning of that pyramid or whatever that pursuit is as humans, we're busy kind of looking at everything else. We're looking at birds. We're looking at cats. We're lo- is there something simple, though? We have kids in biology sure. in ninth grade cutting open worms. Yeah. Is there something that's like, OK, good. This thing is just an, a reactive biological thing that we can study and know at least
2: this about well there there are certainly things that we can we can know a lot about so even though it isn't hot these days you know it's funny in science there are these there's these ideas that become hot for a while and in the let's say the 1930s up to the 1960s the hottest thing by far was operant conditioning the idea that you learn from reward to repeat those behaviors that achieved reward and you don't repeat those that lead to punishment that was studied to death and continues to be studied and we share mechanisms that do that kind of learning with all sorts of other animals all the way down to insects Um, bees can learn for example they Mm -hmm. can learn to do tasks Um, so that is an area in which um, we really are Simple to some in in some regard um, because we're so similar to other animals and it's it's very clear advertisers know this so this is People love to think they're so autonomous and they're just making decisions based on reason and and their preferences But their preferences are shaped by those who have You know the capacity to reward them for certain things like you, you know here try this even sugary more sugary food yeah, it tastes good. You know? Well, <laughs> let me add some more sugar. Then I'm going to pull you away from those other food products that don't that don't have it. And you may say, "Well, that's just those are the things I like." Well, you didn't know you liked that until they started piling sugar into your food. And so we gravitate, you know, addiction and all these other um, um, disorders of behavior often boil down to, "I'm drawn to the thing that gives me reward at the most primal level." And I'm gonna to have to, over, to, to overcome that. I'm gonna to have to have some reason, some strong um, overwhelming uh, belief that I have to override this underlying primal drive. And we do do that, um, but the, the extent to which we really are governed by operant conditioning is is really remarkable. And I don't think we talk as much about that anymore these days relative to back in the 1950s. Because that idea isn't hot anymore. It's not
0: the...
2: (laughs) We can study it, for example.
1: Um, Repeat that, we can
2: study what again?
1: It it glitched just a touch there, sorry.
2: Yeah. um, Everything we know about the brain basis of behavior Mm. comes from studying non-human, well, some humans, but also non-human animals doing behaviors and then studying parts of their brains as they do it. And before that, they studied them without going into the brain. They just studied uh, sort of a model of what must be going on in their brains without doing direct physiological measurements by rewarding them for certain things and punishing them for others and seeing well, what can a rat learn to do. Um, well, you, and in and fact... That's so... Um dismissive I I
1: don't want to like liken it to but the maze thing if we're just looking at it as an an object to study or an um, an animal to study yeah do you when you're walking around and see especially in the United States people wear a lot of logos on their clothing they are conditioned in a way this um, what was the term when you're like constantly given a little more sugar and then you find out um, operant
2: that- operant usually uh, refers to you did something in order to you operated okay. something it's it's a yeah. sort of weird term that this guy Skinner made up back in the 30s or 40s um, but basically it just means you do something to get reward and if you do you say well I'm going to do that again we do it in such a because we have an
1: economy we have a, a work structure exactly. and people <laughs> we would say it as like a you know there probably people in uh, underground bookstores or this kind of uh, free trade sort of man it's the man getting you and they're not wrong in the sense that even people that make a ton of money that have access to so much education would still pine for like a maserati or this fancy car to say i did this therefore i'm entitled to this i ran through the maze i get to go shopping is that why we call it the rat race? I mean, it is, is this such an old pretty concept? Much. <laughs> I mean, I,
2: yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's that's where it comes from, and it and it's you know it it's obvious that in fact money is the greatest incentive uh, that that humans have. Mm-hmm. They use it in all in all cultures, really. Maybe there are a few actually that that don't, but uh, beyond a certain level of let's say organizational complexity or population density, they all have currency. And they use it to to incentivize each other to give them what they want and to get what they want. You can tell you can force somebody to do something, sure. But then you got how do you get the people who force the people? To, you, you, you know, you basically you have to reward somebody somewhere. And without it, you're not going to get anything uh, that you want. Um, and you can make that. Uh, you know as brutal and horrible as you want or you can recognize that look that's part of life and let's try to make it as humane as we can but yeah we respond to basic rewards um so where you you asked earlier are we glitching again or no no you're good i think I'm, I'm oh okay y- you froze a little bit <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah um Yeah, basically, uh, this is something that we, uh, the dominance of that view of psychology for so long uh, sort of set up a backlash, which was, you know, so it was really radical back in the 30s, 40s, 50s to say, oh, humans are just like rats. I mean, this isn't that long after the Scopes Monkey Trial. Mm -hmm. The idea that we evolved from anything not human, uh, it was just, just took away certain people's ideas of their dignity and and their place in the universe It's just it's just such an appalling idea to them and yet just a few years later psychologists are saying look these same principles govern human and non-human behavior and it explains so much that in fact that's all there is and then there was kind of a backlash against that, saying, well, we've got these computers that don't learn from reward. They actually plan things out the way a human might sit down with pencil and paper and and use symbols to make plans. Where's the conditioning in that? So the backlash against that, the cognitive revolution, it was called, uh, was uh, basically kind of the death knell for that um, as the dominant paradigm for explaining behavior uh, the the big one was skinner the great behaviorist saying well here's how we learn language we get rewarded for producing sentences saying the right words and putting them in the right order and then noam chomsky a famous linguist and political activist um, comes along and says no we never heard before. We've this variety of sentences that there's no way we sat there and iteratively got rewarded for saying things. Sure, babies, you know, we, they they do, parents love it when babies start to say sounds and words and, and then put them together, but they quickly learn the rules of the game and start making sentences they've never heard before. And so people got excited about that. Now we're talking about Stuff that is especially if not uniquely uh, human, which is the ability to speak Make tools make plans. Rats don't seem to do that. Mm-hmm. Sure, we respond to rewards and everything, but let's focus on this uniquely human or almost uniquely human uh, uh, Capacity. In fact, that's why the bird experiments are so interesting to people Is we used to say No other animal could do this. Well, yeah, they can. They can <laughs> solve problems. They mm-hmm. can. They can think ahead, but they can't use language. Um, and then there are even some counterexamples to that. You look at certain parrots, and it it, it sure sounds like they are on the verge of understanding language, essentially, and producing it. Um. Yeah. So there was this reaction to that, and now we've gone in the direction, especially with computers, of all this planning stuff, and at the same time there was this undercurrent just beginning saying well how do computers learn from reward and punishment or from you did that right or you did that wrong and they just keep trying and learning new things that we didn't program in. That was a new concept um, and that's where neural networks come from. And this idea that you could just put an agent out there and just let it learn from experience was pretty remarkable and Um, didn't always work that well. So there were times when people got excited in the 1960s about neural networks that could learn from experience. And that's actually when I got interested in computer science and cognitive science. I read uh, this article by a guy named Rosenblatt on a machine called the Perceptron that could (laughs) learn from experience. And it generated huge excitement in the 1960s and then it was shown that they couldn't learn some pretty simple stuff. And that was thought to be sort of the death of neural networks, and we got back to classical artificial intelligence, which is all about planning, making problem-solving programs, things like that. And then in the 80s, turns out, some of those shortcomings were became widely known, at least, that, that no, in fact, you can get around those uh, shortcomings by making uh, a different kind of neural network, essentially. And I was fascinated by that. It kind of drove me throughout all my career that you could make machines that learn, that you don't program everything into them. You don't program knowledge. They acquire it. And uh, this was not a popular idea in what was once known as artificial intelligence, and that's where I got my Ph.D. And I just thought, how can we, how can we have robots walking around being intelligent if they can't learn from experience it just doesn't make sense to me but i was kind of in the wilderness at that time because neural networks weren't doing anything good that wasn't they weren't achieving great successes and so what wound up happening is around 2005 2006 people started well what happened was the internet Mm -hmm. you have this giant database of images and sounds with labels and so I could give you 25,000 cat images and I could call them up really quickly and just download them into my computer and then train a neural network to recognize cats and just keep t- showing it a cat and say, is that a cat or a dog? <laughs> that tell you, is I, a I, it's cat. a cat. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I
1: was just thinking of robot, like like wanting like operative or operant behavior going that is a cat and you can't really reward it so much you just have to go oh good it's learning but they yeah like the where's the joy in is it just that they know like, well, there's no joy, there's no
2: emotion in these things. Still, no for I mean, you still... though, like because we oh, have for... we have
1: it now. You know, like hey, you're you're trying to sign up to this list. Um, what's this word say here? Identify all these crosswalks. Identify
2: the, what's a drawbridge. Yes, the CAPTCHA, Yeah, and then uh, the robot
1: you designed is like, I'm sorry,
2: boss, I can't. Yeah, and you're like, well, God, the joy just... comes from from overcoming that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the an engineer always wants to solve some problem that nobody else has ever solved. And so if you can come up with something that these captcha, um, uh, problems to authenticate and, and pretend that it's human, if you can get your program to do that, where's the joy in that? It's, you just nailed it. You just did something <laughs> nobody else could do. It's, it's yeah. super exciting. You know, when you um, talk about
1: the them, uh, learning or moving beyond maybe what they're trained to do, picking up things yes. that, and I, I I feel like maybe Ex Machina has a little bit of that. Yeah, a, oh, totally. Great, great movie. Such a great, I, I figured, yeah, you would love the premise of that and how it's executed. And, Absolutely. But think, thinking of, what if you bought the universe or just even a solar system and it wasn't so much entering code, it was like fish food in the ocean and you didn't believe it, but like, Yeah, you have to – there's some parameters as it goes along, but basically just watch with some bacteria and mitochondria and DNA, et cetera. It's going to – it'll move quickly. And you are just the universe watching humans, and you watch them figure out how to use the first tool or create fire or a wheel, and then Mm -hmm. it just starts taking off pretty quick. And then pretty soon, they're flying around the planet. They're flying out to other – you know celestial objects they're yeah. they're studying other animals they're studying themselves they're opening up each other's brains and dissecting them and who could have predicted that and the the machines that you're hoping to do they could go in so many different directions
2: sure yeah and i guess the equivalent would be there like what would the engineer's job be in that case and what would be exciting about it well well you know maybe your options would be do I, how many planets do I put around this sun, <laughs> and how close do I have to? Have, well, it turns out you got to make sure you're in this habitable zone that allows water to be liquid, but there's enough warmth and energy to drive these processes, but not too much so it doesn't burn them all up. And the orbit's got to be stable. And so once you set all those things up, then you can watch it go. And, you know, you look at 10 million other solar systems, and eh, unfortunately, there was you didn't put the planet quite in the habitable zone, or you did, but the sun was the star was too big. And it didn't last long enough, it burned up all its fuel. So so the making neural networks learn to do amazing things is kind of like setting up a solar system like that, where you say, that's the fun part. Mm -hmm. And then you get to watch it do its thing the classic artificial intelligence people will say yeah but actually you're not watching any of that if you don't understand what happened you set it up it learned something you look at this neural network which is just a bunch of little each little device each little element of one of these networks all it does is add up a bunch of stuff and then it sends out what it added up to all these other little elements through connections that can be strong or weak Mm-hmm. So if I'm, if I'm connected to you and I'm sending you my output, maybe we have a strong connection. You're strongly influenced by what I send out to you. But maybe you we learn from experience, well, that was a mistake. Why don't we weaken that connection so that I'm not driving you to do things you shouldn't do and it turns out that connection was, a, was one that we ought to keep weak. That's all that neural networks are. They're, do we strengthen or weaken these connections? And then what we wind up with is a bunch of connections thousands of them and it's very hard to interpret sometimes well what do these things know Mm -hmm. We, we don't even understand they learned sure we have a theory that explains that they're going to learn things in certain circumstances they will provably eventually find a set of strong or weak connections that allow it to interpret speech basically at least to process it and you know say okay the person wants option one Mm -hmm. or option two and you know how often that fails right but uh (laughs) Mm, but then it works at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know i was saying earlier basically what happened was the internet came around this um this period in which neural networks were sort of viewed as just sort of silly you can't you don't understand what they're doing they don't work that well all of a sudden they've got all this data all these labels. Now you can train neural networks to understand what's a cat, what's a dog, and suddenly it has kind of transformed the world. It's in all of our smartphones. All of our speech recognition is being done by neural networks that have been trained to understand different uh, phonemes from different languages through thousands of recordings where we know we have a transcript, we have the sounds, We play the sounds to the neural network, and it spits out what it thinks the words are, and we just keep telling it no, 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 until it finally gets it right. Mm -hmm. And then we say, look, wow, that worked way because we have so much data. And before 2005, before the internet really hit its stride, we didn't have that so now what is remarkable to me and i still wonder about what my professors must think of this from (laughs) and i haven't talked to them about this but um, my artificial intelligence professors from my phd um, they really thought my interest in neural networks was just kind of silly um and and they wanted to do programming of knowledge into machines and you could just look at it and say oh here's what it knows you can go read its database it's in english you know basically and now all of a sudden, neural networks are so dominant that when people say artificial intelligence, they they mean neural networks. This must just <laughs> drive them nuts. Um, and yet, you know, it's it we're still at a point where okay, so they can process speech and they can say, oh, you wanted option one or you wanted option two on the automated voice system, but it's not clear that they understand anything. Yeah, you, you, they're not fully autonomous. They have a limited repertoire, and they don't have emotions, and they are not generally fully autonomous. You kind of combine them with computer programs and with human operators, and that's, that's say, where we're at right now.
1: So but. speaking of where we're at and say where we might go, say you're the engineers and you're watching the universe or at least this solar system, yeah. and tools, language, emotion, uh, very social, able to explore and out peeking around at some of the other objects around us. And then it 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 reaches an inevitable end, where maybe they destroyed the planet, and you're watching the final few going. The, it's not heating up. What, I don't. What's everyone saying? And the, <sighs> the population is just depleting. And there are people going, "This is crazy. Don't change anything." And then they all wipe out, and they're done. Mm-hmm. And you hit enter, and your thing starts. You know, calculating all the data, and it's running, and just a moment, saving this file, and then it's saved, and you name it, and you go, okay, now iteration two, what should we change? Hmm. For you doing this with neural networks, is that part of the fun that, like, you could be on your knees with something that you help design going, you understand why I'm doing this, right? And you go, yeah, I I wish I could see more, but go ahead. Then they murder you, and then you just have to (laughs) assume what they're going to go do. And hopefully some version of you, um, your, your soul detaches from your pineal gland and you get to watch (laughs) it. You're watching from above and you get to see what your neural networks go on and do. Is there an end goal for that? Do you like, do you want them to establish a wonderful society or to be good to the planet?
2: You know, uh, part of my struggle in, in, uh, my graduate school and postdoctoral career is that there are these different uh, strains. There are engineers and there are scientists. Computer science and artificial intelligence is, is at least was recently really dominated by the engineering viewpoint, which is I'm trying to solve a problem. I don't care how humans do it. At its inception, artificial intelligence was this combination of computer technology and psychology. They mm-hmm. did want to understand how is it that brains do what we do. Let's make a model of it, and let's make it electronic, and let's automate it and let it run, Um, but, you know, that's the engineering perspective. The science perspective has been sort of separate from the artificial intelligence of the past 50 years, and they're not trying to make robots. They're trying to understand how the brain works. And yes, computers influence that and computer models of different types influence that, but they're trying to understand. And so then you get, you know, so you've got the engineering and the scientific perspective, but neither one of those seems to have any values attached (laughs) to it. Maybe, maybe the science, I'm sorry, the engineering one does. We're trying to make the world, you hear every technology company in the world says, we're making the world a better place. Through technology, I don't know what that means exactly. Why is it better? It's not clear at all that it is. Um, but at least they say that science is is almost by definition valueless. It doesn't say what we're what we want to come of all this. It's just a matter of does your hypothesis fit the data? Yeah, and that's it. And what what comes up? You know, we might find out things like how to split the atom, and not be ready for that. Um Well, there were people that
1: opted out of being a part of like the Manhattan Project and could see yeah. like hey i don't I don't know what application this could have that's good and then sure enough, like it's pretty pretty unbelievable that that was carried out by people we would consider very intelligent because yeah. their logic of it would be well, if I don't do it, someone else will, and or what if they do it wrong, then it could go you know they they all made these. I guess like um, concessions to their own values if they had them, or maybe they didn't think about it because they thought,
2: like you're saying, it's just science. I don't care what they do with it. I just like to pursue it. Well, in the case of the bomb, that is actually taking science in an engineering direction. So Einstein and other people realize, um, wow, if this equation, E equals mc squared, if that's right then my god the amount of energy we could release by splitting a big atom is just astronomical we didn't know that before until we had this simple equation and now you have the um uh, situation where you understand if you weaponized this concept it would be really bad for the united states and for the allies if the nazis get there first Mm -hmm. and uh, they tried and they came somewhat close so I don't know Oppenheimer's story as well as I should, but there were these, now everyone has values. It's not that science, I should be very clear about this, scientists themselves have values, but science as a process is really just a process of understanding how the world works. What you do with it after that, Mm -hmm. that's up to you, that's up to philosophers and ethicists and you, yourself, you have to make these, you're a philosopher, you're an ethicist, everybody is. and you have to decide. Well, well, should we make this terribly destructive device? No, it, that all depends on what you think about you know, the outcome of World War II. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there were all these people who thought, well, yeah, we need to defeat the Nazis, but oh, by the way, we also have to destroy capitalism. And so, I'm going to leak these plans to the Soviet Union, and they did. And you know, <laughs> so there were several people in the Manhattan Project who took everything we figured out and gave it to the Soviets gave us the arms race and um, so their values affected what they did and the, the bomb itself was a was an engineering project
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, but I guess what you know is somewhat troubling sometimes is that you know we, we keep working on this science and we keep finding out all this amazing stuff but we haven't really formulated a value system that we all agree on and that gives us a unified idea about what we should do with these things you can say the internet itself is is you know look at all that that has come from the internet I and mean, we we're doing some amazing stuff right now i can't believe this is like star trek yeah. when i was a kid
1: yeah yeah this you're is... gonna talk
2: to a guy in california <laughs> you can see him like on star trek and you just i mean you don't have to be there physically that's incredible that's a good thing yeah well <laughs> there's some downsides there's some definite downsides and it's hard to it's hard to predict what's going to happen. And so, um, yeah, the engineering aspect has always been, look, I'm just going to solve this problem here. It's going to make things better. And then, you know, the long-term effect of that, boy, that's hard to predict. And it's often the case that, well, I'm sorry, it didn't make things better. It, it, it created a lot of problems that, you know,
1: I want to get into um, maybe trying to form a value that people could objectively come close to agreeing on to pursue. I want to hear Mm. more about, um, we'll read more of this bio and uh, your entry into all of this. Uh, We'll take a little break if that's cool with you. Sure, yeah. How great was that? I I hope you enjoyed it. I found myself thinking back on this conversation a lot, thinking that we had discussed way more than we had, and I realized a lot of it was, my mind just thinking of things. So that was, I hope you were having that same experience of the things that were expressed and talked about. This is a challenging podcast. I would say this isn't like listening to a couple of people chat about an episode of a reality TV show or something that you're like, Oh yeah, I thought that too. What was that weird? Look, this was more like, you gotta, you gotta be invested. So hopefully if you're on a road trip or sitting at home or in traffic, wherever you were listening to this, I hope you were able to give it uh, the time or the attention, because I really felt um, stimulated. The thing I love, having your brain activated. And I remembered what I was going to say at the beginning that I didn't get to, which was uh, Matthew had asked Pat, as I'll call it, Dr. Simon, but as you heard, uh, just refer to him as Pat, uh, hey, is he still doing the beer thing? And we had this whole conversation, I think before we started recording, that it seemed... Like, I was putting people out, maybe, during this to ask them to sort of go out and not only be ready to podcast or get on Zoom, but then to also have some some beer on hand. And he was like, oh, I totally would. And I was like, okay, good to know. So in the future, I'll hopefully bring that element back. But he was like, do you mind if I have a white claw? So during this conversation, part two, he gets all white clawed up. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but... It's nice to know. Maybe we'll slowly bring that element back into the podcast. It's fun to be in person. It's nice to share a beer with someone. But we can do that through Zoom as well. And hopefully as we ease back into potentially doing these things in person, we'll bring back the beer element. But come back uh, next week for part two with Dr. Patrick Simon from Oberlin College. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. Thanks again to Matt Clement. Um who's on Instagram, He posts really interesting drawings. He's a creative, creative dude. Find him, follow him. Uh, Thanks to those those of you who do support the show, whether that's just suggesting guests, putting me in touch with guests, it really does make a difference. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, If it's subjects you want to talk about, topics, uh, beer, that's back in the mix theoretically or hopefully going forward, music, any of those things you can message in a lot of ways, dot There's also the spacecave.com. The website or the email is pings at the Space Cave. You can support the show through patreon.com/spacecave. behind the scenes things. but more than that, it just helps with um, storage and uh, you know, these files take up space. There's software that goes into it. There's just a lot of stuff behind doing a podcast solo that is uh, currently ad free and hopefully staying that way. I hope you enjoy that. Um, and you may have seen, there was not that it was an accident necessarily, but I, it kind of was. I was exploring how to set up a second RSS feed. And I have this new sketch podcast that I've been working on called Intercepts. So some of you may have seen that in your feed, like, what's this all about? Uh, I'll talk more about that coming up, but some of you have asked about it, and uh, I'm excited. It's been a really fun, creative experience, and so the Patreon has been a little slow the last month, but soon I'll start releasing those things there first, just to get uh, a sense of them or get them start starting to sort of go out into the world. So thanks to those of you who do support the show on Patreon, and keep an eye out for Intercepts a new sketch podcast that I'll be doing, and I'll talk more about that coming up. But that's what I've been up to behind the scenes. I'll probably talk about that on a Patreon episode as well. So, anyway, come back next week for part two. Uh, really great conversation, get more into the brain, more into uh projecting what that could become or what it uh, might lead to, etc. Some philosophical discussions. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do as well. Let's get out of here. This is a song called Frankie by Bari. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the space.